All right. Well, I was told just to get up and start, so we're just going to get up and start. If you open to Ephesians chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, our question for this second session in this series is just what is church? What is church? Simple question, and yet it's a profound question in the sense that it's really important that we understand this concept, that we get it right. I think Ephesians chapter 1 will help us in doing just that. The first 14 verses are where I want to uh, zero in during our Bible class time together this morning. But really, we could look at the entire epistle of Ephesians. You know, some have said that uh, Ephesians is the epistle about the church of the Christ. Uh, it, It has a sister epistle or a companion epistle in Colossians, which focuses more on the Christ of the church. But in Ephesians, we're really focused in on the church itself. A lot of people are asking this question these days. What is church? What comes to your mind? I think for a lot of folks, when they think about church, they start thinking about maybe some pictures like this. Solemn looking buildings and pews, stained glass, uh, altars, stuff like that. When I start going to the New Testament, of course they didn't have any of that stuff, and yet they had church. So what I find is that, biblically speaking, you know, church really isn't any of that stuff. Now, I don't know, maybe you did this this morning. You know, maybe you say, hey, it's time to go to church. And sometimes, you know, we, we talk about church and, and maybe we mean, you know, this building or something like that. Uh, where are you going? I'm going to the church. Well, you know, technically that's incorrect. Although I could see why we would call it that way, right? This building has been built by the church. It is the place where the church assembles, although we understand that if it were necessary for this building not to be used, that the church could still continue. The church could still assemble somewhere else. The church could still do the work of the church. Do we need to talk about COVID again, 2020? You know, for a period of time, our buildings, at least a lot of our buildings, I don't know how you guys responded to it here. Everybody was trying to figure out whatever the best response is. I wonder whether later the history books will be so kind to us. You know, you kind of want to just write down somewhere that they'll print, say, hey, you had to be there, all right, to understand how hard that period of time was. Uh, I I did not envy any eldership in March of 2020. I kind of thought COVID was going to be sort of like the swine flu thing was in America. I thought it was going to be, we'll talk about it for a week, the news cycle will go on, we'll forget about it. (laughs) Boy, was I wrong. I'm not a prophet. That was pretty much evident in March of 2020. Our buildings sat empty. But you know what struck me? The church continued. And the church even found ways to encourage and to serve, to minister that were unique, perhaps, to our times. We had people, I was in Fort Mill, South Carolina at the time, and we had people that were going around leaving encouraging notes in chalk on people's driveways. And, you know, at that time, a lot of us, the elders and I, as the preacher there at Gold Hill Road, we would be the only ones maybe present for a brief period of time at the church building on Sunday mornings. But we walked out one day, or actually we got to the building one Sunday morning, and there on the sidewalk was this of encouragement for us 
We appreciate what you're doing. Wow, that went a long way for me to the point that now, two and a half years later, I'm here telling you about it. It's pretty neat. When we talk about the church, we're talking about a people. The church is a people. As I come to Ephesians, just turn over with me to chapter 5 for a minute and look at verses 23 and 24. Now, Ephesians 5, I think most of us think about this section of Ephesians as sort of like the marriage section. And there's no doubt, Paul's talking about marriage and the home. What's interesting, though, is when I come down to verses 30 and 31, um, rather, verse 32, he says, listen, this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. All right, Paul says, listen, I'm using marriage as an illustration to communicate a truth about the Lord's church. This section is about the Lord's church. That's not to say we shouldn't read it at, at weddings or maybe that even we shouldn't address it in premarital counseling. I know I do, but at the same time, Paul says, I'm talking about the church here. So back up to verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, I know it's, it, it's hard maybe not to fixate on the wives and husbands thing, but let's look at what Paul is saying here about the church and the relationship that exists between the church and Christ. He says, Christ serves as the head of the church, and that the church in turn submits to Christ. How does just that description of roles affect our understanding of what church is? How is it possible, unless the church is a people, it's a group, for the church to submit to Jesus? And how is it possible for Jesus to be the head over just something that is conceptually institutional? Or, um, you know, some kind of building somewhere? No, we're talking about people. That kind of goes back and builds upon the concept of our sermon this morning. Because God seeks relationship with us. And that relationship is carried out in the context of church. So you know, Matthew 16, 18, on this rock, that rock I believe being conceptually speaking the, the foundation that Peter has just confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. All right, Peter, you know, you're right. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I'm going to tell you that you're Peter and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. I'm calling out my assembly. In fact, the ESV will translate that term, ecclesia, you know, that's like one of the Greek words we know, translated church. Four times in the ESV it's translated assembly. One of the, sometimes it just means a group of people that gather together, not really religious in nature. It was a general kind of term. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrews writer talks about the assembly of the firstborn, Hebrews 12, verse 23. We are his assembly. We are a people, and we are his people. At its core, the church is a people. And so I come back to Ephesians, and I look in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He, God, put all things under his, Jesus' 
feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, we're talking about the body of Christ. We're talking about a people who submit to Christ. We're talking about the church, Matthew 16, 18. And if I keep reading back in Matthew 16 and I come to the very next verse, verse 19, Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Wait, time out, Jesus. I thought we were talking about the church. Well, yeah, we are. In Matthew 16, 18, and 19, we have one of these great passages where we see the church and the kingdom used interchangeably. And while sometimes we can read kingdom and it's talking about heaven, that is to say where we all will be, at the same time there's a sense in which the church is the kingdom of heaven now because we are the inhabitants of heaven in the future, right? That's where we're headed. And so the church is a people. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the kingdom of Christ. The church is comprised of saints. Look at Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the holy ones. Your translation probably says the saints, but that's what it means. The holy ones, the people who are set apart. The people who, are, who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, as we'll go down to see in a moment. The holy ones who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. We're talking about saints. We're talking about Christians. By the way, sidebar, the New Testament doesn't see this distinction that we sometimes make where saints are like super Christians. Or like you have to be voted into sainthood or something. The saints are Christians. And if you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, then the Bible calls you a holy one, a saint. And that term is not to be a term that makes me feel exalted above anybody else, but instead that demonstrates what God has done in me, cleansing me of my sin, and what God then expects me to continue to be, someone who will continually strive for holiness. So the church is a people. That's the point I'm trying to make. And as we come to Ephesians chapter 4, we see four, uh, rather Ephesians chapter 1, we, come, we see four designators with regard to this people that will help us further answer the question, what is church? Boy, y'all are on top of it though. When I said four, y'all were there. That's great. You got to give me a little time because sometimes that takes a while for me to get all my thoughts out. All right, anyway, sorry. Ephesians chapter 1, the church is a people. And in the first place, the apostle says the church is a planned people. This comes from Ephesians 1, uh, really, verses 4 through 6. We'll start at verse 3. And as we do, let's notice three key terms that I'll try and emphasize as we read. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, word number one, chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, number two, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of, number three, his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All right, the church is a planned people. And to really bring that out, we see that emphasized in the three words that we have 
uh, highlighted together from this reading. He chose us, verse 4. He predestined us, verse 5. And all of this was according to the purpose of his will. Now sometimes the beauty and the truth of this passage can become muddy because of false doctrines that exist. And when we talk about the doctrine of election or of predestination, he predestined us, verse 5, talking about concepts that are biblical. But as we said, unfortunately, sometimes are hijacked by someone who would seek to deceive us, take us away from the beauty of New Testament truth. I'm not trying to be unkind in what I'm saying here about that. We just need to know. Because there are folks who will tell us that this idea of election really means that God had specified before time began. I'm going to simplify, okay, and, and talk in broad brushes. I don't mean to be unkind or crass with this. I'm just trying to help us all get on the same page. That God predestined before the foundation of the world specific individuals who are saved or lost. And essentially, at least the implications of their teaching, this false teaching, is that you can't do anything to change that. It kind of takes away the free will uh, of, uh, of our choices, the, the idea that we can choose what it is that we're going to do. They'll, they'll phrase it like this. God in his sovereignty, they will say, and God is sovereign. He's above all and control of all. But they'll say that God in his sovereignty will plant through the Holy Spirit faith in the hearts of specific individuals. And that will turn their hearts toward obedience, submission to the message of the gospel. And therefore, in their obedience to the gospel, they are evidencing that they are among the saved. And it gets things all out of sorts, biblically speaking. It sort of makes it to where people who are proponents of this doctrine actually have to jump through some hoops when they get to some difficult passages that contradict the messages that they teach and preach. Uh, they will say that faith is a gift... A gift that comes from the Holy Spirit. Hey, listen. Um, you know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. And in that sense, maybe it would be appropriate to say that faith is something that we glean from God himself. But it's inappropriate to imply that God's foreknowledge is causative. The fact that God knows the end from the beginning does not mean that God has forced the events to go the way that they turn out. God's foreknowledge is not causative. God can work out in his providence his will to be accomplished in spite of human decisions. But we see that more on a whole scale rather than on an individual scale, if that makes sense. So let's look down at Ephesians 1 and see what this is actually teaching. All right? I don't want to spend all my time telling you what this isn't saying. He chose us, us in him, us. Back to verse 1, the saints. We've already established the saints are Christians. The Christians are the members of the church. And the church is that body of individuals, this group of people who are the saved. All right, if I go back to Ephesians chapter 5 a minute. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, and is himself its Savior. Okay, so everybody who is in the church is saved. 
The blood of Jesus is covering those who are in the church. And here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is teaching that the church was chosen before the foundation of the world. That is to say, the church has always been a part of the plan of God. That we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us, verse 5 says, for adoption. Notice that the purpose of this election, this predestination, this choosing, is relational in nature. God desires a relationship with us, and so he's made provisions by which we can be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And the point that Paul seems to be making here is, if we could just generalize, is that when I am a part of the church, when I am in the church, when I am one among the saints, then what I'm doing is connecting to the plan that has always been the plan of God since before the foundation of the world. It precedes the Mosaic Law. It precedes the time of the patriarchs, going back to the book before the book of Genesis. And it goes even to the heart and the mind of God before creation ever took place. God knew he would create humans. Humans would depart from him in sin. They would choose to do that. God didn't make us do that. And God knew that in response to that, we would need and he would provide a savior. All of this was, according to the end of verse 5, in accordance with the purpose of his will. So being among those who are in the, book, in the, in the group of those who are chosen means then that we have responsibility. Verse 4, that we are to be holy and blameless before him. We're talking about a relational term. We're talking about who we're to be in response to who he is. So, the church is a planned people. God planned before the foundation of the world that individuals who would respond in submission to the message of the gospel could be adopted as sons and daughters into God's family by virtue of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus. And God said that whoever is within this family, whoever is within the church, are those who are the saved, the saints, the holy ones, the Christians, the future inhabitants of heaven. That because they've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and they continue, we continue to live a life that is holy and blameless before him. All in accordance with his will. Notice how relational this is. We see a plethora of, of plural personal pronouns in Ephesians 1. He has chosen us, verse 4, in him. He predestined us, verse 5, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us, verse 6, in the beloved. In him we have redemption. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, verse 7. And you keep going all the way down here. I went through and highlighted in yellow every one of these personal pronouns because he's telling us this, this is about this community of people, a planned people. All right, number two. The church, well, I better pick up the page. Y'all's clocks go faster in Kentucky than they do in Tennessee. <laughs> the church is a purged people. We're a planned people, but we're a purged people. Verse 7, 
in him, did you notice that prepositional phrase that keeps popping up? In him, in Christ, in the beloved. This is one of those phrases that Paul loves to use. Of of Paul's 13 epistles, he uses this phrase or a form of it some 164 times. 36 times in Ephesians. 23 times in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. You think the Holy Spirit through Paul is trying to make a point? In him, in Christ, in him. This is where I want to be. In him we have, Paul is going to emphasize three words. We have redemption, number one, through his blood, number two. The forgiveness, number three, of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We've emphasized three more words that highlight to us that the church is a purged people. Word number one is redemption. And what a beautiful word this is. Redemption really encapsulates three major concepts. Number one, it speaks to bondage. Number two, it speaks to the payment of a ransom price so that, number three, one can be liberated from that previously mentioned bondage. Bondage, ransom, liberation. And all of those concepts, those three ideas are encapsulated in this one word, redemption. In him, Jesus, we have the payment of a ransom price that is sufficient to liberate us from the bondage of sin in which we found ourselves. A bondage that I entered into of my own free will. A bondage that I got myself into. But Jesus, by his grace, Communicating to us and showing to us the grace of God which has been lavished on us, verse 8, has made it possible for me to be redeemed. Sweet is the song I'm singing today. I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed. In chapter 2, Paul will teach us, beginning in verse 1, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But now, verse 4, God... Uh, but, uh, uh, but, now, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Redemption. The ransom price that was paid for us was the blood of Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood of interest. Acts 20, verse 28 teaches me, That Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking to the saints, chapter 1, verse 1. Those who are in Christ throughout chapter 1. Those who are part of the church, chapter 1, 22 and 23. Chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. And in talking to them, he says, we, because he's talking to the church, we have redemption through his blood. And he corroborated that very thing in Acts 20, 28, when he said that the church was purchased with his own blood. I come down in Ephesians to 2, 13, and he says, now in Christ, you who once were far off, 
have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that this blood is precious. That it is the blood of the Lamb who is without blemish and without spot. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's no substitute for this. This is it. In the garden, he prayed, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And you know the answer to that. Three times, no less, was no. There is no other way than this. This is it. If we will have redemption, it has to come through his blood. That's the only ransom price that could be paid that could bring about the liberation from the bondage in which I find myself with sin. But Jesus comes and he preaches truth and he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you what? Free, John 8, 32. I can be liberated from that bondage. The church is a people. It's a planned people. It's a purged people. In fact, Paul goes on. The third word that we've emphasized from verse 7, redemption, blood, even the forgiveness of our trespasses. Release, pardon. It's one thing to be liberated from bondage. But even having been liberated, that past bondage is still there. Here, the Holy Spirit communicates through Paul that not only has Jesus, by virtue of his blood, paid the ransom price to liberate me from the bondage in which I once found myself, but now we have also through that very same blood, forgiveness. In other words, Jesus goes and he erases the past. It's not there anymore. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more, the Hebrews writer says, on behalf of God there in chapter 10. 1 John 1.7 tells us as Christians that as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, the senses continually cleanses us from all sin. Cleansing, it's not there anymore. The stain is gone. The past has been wiped away. What is church? It's a people. We are a people, a planned people, a purged people, a possessed people. All right, don't take that the wrong way. Okay. I'm not talking about our demons. <laughs> As I come to Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14, Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, I think that's a reference to Jewish Christians, they received the gospel first. It was first preached to them. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, now I think he's talking to Gentile Christians. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, second time this word's been used, inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Who am I? Who? What is the church? Well, verses 11 and 14 describe an inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance, a portion, an allotment. What's interesting is the New American Standard Bible has a footnote here 
that says, In him we were made a heritage. That changes the sense a little bit, doesn't it? It's not just something I receive, now it's something that I am. I'm his heritage. Down to verse 14, when it says, Who is the guarantee? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. We've got a footnote in the ESV that says, uh, rather, when he goes on to say, Until we acquire possession of it, the footnote is, Until God redeems his possession. This goes all the way back in Old Testament history to the book of Deuteronomy where God through Moses communicated to the children of Israel that they would be his people, that they would be his heritage, his inheritance. And we see that repeated again in passages like Isaiah and forward, even into the New Testament age. May I suggest that it's God's desire in the church to redeem, to liberate from bondage a people of his own possession, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.9. We are his people. Or to quote from the psalmist, we are his sheep and the sheep of his pasture. We're his. We are possessed by him. That is to say we're his possession. And to communicate that, he's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal of this promise. That is to say... I'm so fused to Jesus that I'm said to be His. I'm said to be in Him. And I demonstrate that by living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, teaching things consistent with that which the Holy Spirit teaches. And as a result, I will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. This isn't a miraculous thing. I can show you that I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit by the way that I live, which is in keeping with the message that the Holy Spirit has revealed. We're his possession. All right, let me hasten to number four because I heard that bell. The church is a purposed people. Three times in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, we've read the same phrase. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? To the praise of his glory. We have a purpose. And that is to glorify God. Best I can tell, the term glory is a summary term encapsulating all of God's nature. To say that God is glorious is to encapsulate the fact that God is all-loving and God is commerciful and God is just and, and all of those things, as well as what we studied in our sermon this morning, that God is omnipotent and God is omniscient and God is everywhere present. And all of those things are encapsulated in this term glory. God says, Moses, I'm going to show you a portion of my glory. I want you to be impressed with who I am and my nature. And so if we are to glorify God, that means that we'll respond to God's glory in an appropriate way. In other words, we'll submit to him. We'll do what he says. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, after Paul has declared that we've been made alive with Christ and raised up with him and seated with him. He says in verse 7, so that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? The redeemed people of God, the church, his planned, his purged people, his possessed people, have this purpose of forever being a monument to the grace of God. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 1, if I can summarize. God has forgiven me, and I'm a testament to the fact that God can and will forgive you. In Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11, he says this, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I don't understand everything that that means, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. But here's what I guess we can say about that. There are spirit beings existing somewhere other than this earth who evidently are seeing God's plan unfold through the annals of history, and in looking at the church, that's us, they see the manifold wisdom of God. That's humbling to me. I wish I knew more. But here's what I know. We have a purpose. And three times in our text this morning, he's communicated that. To the praise of his glorious grace. What's church? We're a people. Planned by God. Purged from our sins. His possession. And yes, a people with a purpose. To bring Him glory. Are you a part of that? If we are, let's be spurred on and encouraged to act like it. And to live up to this wonderful high calling that's only available because of Jesus. And if you're not a part of this wonderful group of people... It's not exclusive in the sense that you cannot be a part of it. Jesus welcomes you into it. Talk to somebody this morning about that. Let's set up a study. Let's talk about it. Let's so that you can be a part of this wonderful people of God. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being your people. Thank you for Jesus who makes it possible. Thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy in him. And therefore, with each other is our prayer in his name. Amen.